right. Welcome to the Cava Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Torello. Coming up, the world is watching as Russia continues its military buildup and tough talk over Ukraine. Notwithstanding the focus on diplomatic efforts to avoid conflict, what naval and maritime power can Russia mobilize for a Black Sea war? We'll talk with an experienced observer of Russian military and diplomatic activities, Nicholas J. Myers. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. U.S. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby on January 21st announced the impending kickoff of Neptune Strike 22, a major NATO-led naval exercise that will run from January through February 4th. The U.S. carrier Harry S. Truman and her strike group will take part, operating in the Mediterranean Sea under NATO command. Despite the close proximity of the exercise to the Black Sea and its timing, Kirby noted that planning for the exercise began in late 2020 and that its scenarios are, quote, not designed against the kind of scenarios we might see with Ukraine. Nevertheless, earlier on January 20th, the French Navy announced its Mission Clemenceau 2022 carrier task group will be operating in the Mediterranean in early February alongside the Truman and the Italian carrier Cavour. As reported by the Naval News website, the French will also send a frigate and some fighters into the Black Sea. While not naming a specific operating area, it seems the bulk of the exercises will take place in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. Meanwhile, a group of six Russian amphibious ships left Baltisk on January 15th, apparently en route to the Black Sea. The ships from the Russian Navy's Baltic and Northern fleets were shadowed by NATO ships and aircraft as they passed southbound through the English Channel, through the English Channel on January 19th. The group consisted of five Rapucha-class landing ships and one larger ship, the Peter Morganov. Officially, the Russians said those ships are headed for joint exercises in the Mediterranean Sea. And on January 20th, the Russian Defense Ministry announced that large-scale naval exercises will take place in January and February in, quote, all zones of responsibility, according to the Russian news agency TASS. More than 140 combat and supply ships, over 60 aircraft, and more than 10,000 military personnel will take part. One of the exercises, dubbed Chiru 2022, began January 18th in the Gulf of Oman, where a Russian task group centered on the cruiser Varag and destroyer Admiral Tributz joined the Chinese warship of the 39th Escort Force and Iranian units for four days of maneuvers. The Russian group deployed from Vladivostok in late December and visited India before heading for Iran. The Chinese Navy's 40th Escort Force left Xinjiang, China on January 15 for an anti-piracy deployment in the Gulf of Aden. The task group has the standard composition of a Type 52D destroyer, a Type 54A frigate, and a supply ship with Chinese special forces embarked. China has maintained a continuous series of similar anti-piracy deployments since 2008. And on January 20th, the U.S. destroyer Benfold carried out a Freedom of Navigation, or FONOP, passage in international waters near the Paracel Islands in the South China Sea. The first such passage since September 8th, a notably long gap. China immediately protested, saying the U.S. ship trespassed into Chinese territorial waters without permission. In a statement, the U.S. Navy flatly rejected the Chinese claims, calling them excessive. That the U.S. Navy is now announcing these passages and quickly putting up rebuttals to Chinese protests 
is a definite change from past practices, where the U.S. would carry out such maneuvers but not comment on them, leaving China to provide its own characterizations. And that's a look at just some of the world's naval news this week. All right. It is time for our discussion uh, portion of the podcast. We are very lucky to be joined by Nicholas J. Myers. Uh, Nicholas is a PhD candidate at the University of Glasgow, uh, where he is researching the conduct and interaction of Russian foreign and military policies. Uh, Nicholas has been studying Russian policy and statecraft for over 10 years. Uh, he's written a number of reports on the operational capabilities of the Russian military uh, and has overseen a wide variety of war games of potential conflicts in Europe and the Asia Pacific region. We've asked Nicholas to join us to kind of give us some insight uh, on potential uh, Russian naval action uh, in and around Ukraine, uh, should things continue along the path that uh, many pundits see them going. So Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and can you start off by maybe just kind of talking a little bit about what exactly you're studying and, and what your uh, you know PhD dissertation is on? Yeah, thanks for inviting me to come aboard with you guys. Uh, long time listener, first time caller, I suppose. Um, my PhD dissertation is examining to what extent do Russian military exercises and modernization trends that we see actually follow uh, the degree of vitriol that Moscow likes to spew against its enemies from time to time. So basically, it's a giant quantitative database of uh, every time that Maria Zaharova or anybody else inside Moscow says something nasty about another country, does that mean that more military exercises are coming to their door? Just trying to see to what extent that uh, they actually can get their different uh, dime components to interact with each other. So I won't ask you where you are in terms of figuring that out, because you told us before we went on air that you have a few more weeks uh, to come to the conclusion. So I won't spoil it for our listeners. Um, but with, you know, your expertise um, in mind and, and, you know, as a starting point, um, what should our listeners know about the Russian Navy? Um, you know, Chris had mentioned to you before we came on that we do spend a lot of time here lately talking about the Chinese Navy uh, and how it has grown into, you know, the world's um, preeminent Navy, at least in terms of, uh, you know, size. But, you know, for folks that don't follow the Russian Navy as close as they do the Chinese, um, what what should we know? Um, and then we can get into, uh, you know, a Ukraine Black Sea specific, uh, you know, line of questioning. Sure. So. I think the most prominent discussion point that we hear about the People's Liberation Army Navy these days is just the rate of shipbuilding, and it is tremendous. Uh, but Russia is honestly not terribly far behind in terms of quantity of ships being put out these days. Uh, part of that is simply just need. A lot of their a lot of their ships from the start of the 21st century were aging already, uh, Soviet vintage, and it didn't. We're not getting any younger by not getting any younger, and especially. Since the reacquisition of Crimea in 2014, uh, they suddenly were able to uh, reinvest uh, assets into the Black Sea Fleet that had previously been left to rust due to all sorts of diplomatic agreements that they had had with the state of Ukraine in order to continue to lease that base. So they've been on a pretty rampant uh, purchase spree recently, but they have very much been going towards that distributed lethality mindset longer than uh, the United States has been considering it. So the last capital ship that Russia uh, commissioned, I believe is still the Kilda Vieliki, which was uh, the world's only battle cruiser these days, uh, commissioned in 1998 for the Northern Fleet. 
since then, they have been cranking out the Corvettes um, as well as a number of supply ships on a regular basis. And these have really become the core of how the Russian Navy operates. Uh, this ability to skip as many platforms that can shoot missiles out into the sea uh, as rapidly as possible. This has somewhat complicated their notion of how they're going to think about fighting a naval war. And it means that when we in the West try to debate how the scenario formulates, uh, it's difficult to do that from an order of battle anymore, the same way that you could try to construct it from Soviet articles and order of battle about how the different formations would function. But we can see in the exercises that they're basically, um, they're basically experimenting with their own small, very small scale surface action groups, uh, primarily oriented around ensuring that they have continued strike power uh, long after regardless of the survivability of the assets in a hypothetical conflict. So um, one, of the, one of the aspects here is the, the Chinese have been building a big blue water Navy, um, essentially in many ways replicating what the US Navy has been doing for the last half century or more. The Russians aren't worried about that. Um, th those, were, those were some goals towards the end of the Soviet era but they all kind of fell apart and that's not what they're doing now. Now, like you said, they concentrate on small combatants, um, Corvettes, a, a number of different small Corvettes, really large patrol types. Um, frigates are about the biggest thing they, they, they really build anymore, but also submarines and they're building like, like half a dozen different kinds of different classes of submarines right now, which is amazing. Uh, nobody else is building that kind of complexity. And these are, you know, they, their specialty is now become small craft warfare, of course, mine warfare because of their geography. Um, they have an amphibious capability, although it's not great and it's mostly old. Um, but their submarines are, are certainly very capable subs. Um, they certainly know how to build submarines. They do know how to operate them. The issue here is they can't build that fast. Uh, it takes them forever to build just about anything. They even had a, a Corvette that was nearing completion, uh, caught fire a couple of weeks ago, it was very heavily damaged while still in the shipyard. That ship's been building for almost a decade. Um, they, don't, they don't build anything very fast, whereas the Chinese turn out a, a pretty sophisticated frigate in, in two years. Um, do you think that, uh, so their concentration seems to be on all kinds of weapons. Uh, platforms. They've got the the, uh, the the caliber cruise missile Tomahawkski, which is on all kinds of platforms now, and they've demonstrated capability in the from the Caspian Sea, then an ability to, to launch these missiles and hit targets um, quite a long distance away. People need to worry about the Caspian Sea flotilla now uh, when you're operating in the Eastern Mediterranean, but also the Zircon hypersonic missile, and they've they've just said uh, this week that um, the the state trials are, are nearing completion and they expect to begin production of this weapon uh, this year, later this year in 2022. It's a Mach 9 weapon. It flies between 30 and 40 kilometers high. It's deployed on frigates and the, the Assen class Project 855 Severed Vinsk attack submarines. How, how much of a threat are these, are the variety of weapons that the Russians are fielding on the ships that they do produce? 
It's an, it's an important question, and you're right to emphasize that the submarine fleet is still the pride and joy of what the Russian Navy can actually bring to bear, um, at, at perhaps a, at a larger degree quantity and quality than any other aspect of the fleet. What these new missiles are doing in terms of revolutionizing the Russian concept of conflict at the moment is that it is, in the words of a recent Vayanayam Weasel article, flattening out the difference between operational and tactical levels of warfare that had previously been considered. So we still see, if you read about exercises of an Iskander missile, a mainstay on the ground forces, that this is an operational tactical weapon. Um, by contrast now, the issue is that the caliber, which has a much longer um, range by virtue of the fact that they could start developing it earlier during the INF period because it was a sea launch cruise missile, uh, is increasingly being integrated specifically into lower and lower uh, officers, lower and lower ranking officers' ability to direct strikes on the battlefield itself. Now, the increasing variety of the missiles that are available really is astounding just how many different things that is being maintained uh, across an, an, infra an infrastructure platform that is not especially robust, even though the Russians um, pride themselves rightly on the fact that they can maintain a military across such an enormous uh, landmass, various different areas of responsibility to service. Uh, my expectation for this future conf for future conflict and the impact of these different missile systems uh, is that we are going to see a lot more self-inflicted A to AD effects uh, inside of the inside of basically a one thousand kilometer radius from the near seas of the Russian Navy. So this is new places like the Caspian Sea. Uh, the Black Sea, Barents Sea, Baltic Sea, even to a certain extent, though that area is as vulnerable to the Russians as it is to anybody else. And of course, the Sea of Japan and the area off of uh, Kamchatka. Now, I say self-inflicted because regardless of how much we, how many of these missiles they are able to crank out, and as you rightly say, production capacity is something that the Russians still don't know how to get to a proper economy of scale in the way that the Chinese certainly can. Uh, because as is going to be more of a perception of what we think that they can strike within that area, as opposed to what they're actually able to do. Um, my reading of the exercises of late is that the Russians are actually a lot more targeted in terms of what they are, what they think they need to destroy in order to create an operational effect than we typically assume. I mean, Russian Federation is simply too large an area to try to cover absolutely everything all at once. So what I think we are going to see uh, is a substantial amount more threat to high value assets operating in the Ukrainian case in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, but at the same time, much less of much less of this bubble effect that we tend to project onto them whenever we create these maps of where all the missiles and coastal defense systems can potentially reach. So a uh, bubble effect, you mean like the area of, say, I mean, you're talking about the area of influence of a weapon, how far far it can hit, yeah, the, the, that sort of thing? The hypothetical radius of a weapons range that we draw onto maps and say that within that range, nothing can operate. 
so going into the into what's going on today, um, you're talking about the Black Sea and Inland Sea. Uh, the Russian the Russians have four fleets. They're stuck by this, frankly, awful geography from a naval point of view, where they they really it's, it's very difficult for them to transfer things around, and they've gotten good at it with a lot of interior um, canals and things and, and waterways, but there's only so much that that, that that's going to carry you. So right now we have, there are six reported amphibious ships that have left the Baltic and the Northern fleet that are coming around into the Baltic. Um, they've just reported North Sea yesterday or something. But um, so they're not likely to, to get into the Baltic for a week or so. One of the things we're looking at is uh, if, if there's a military conflict, if Russia initiates a military conflict in the Ukraine, then it's likely that um, Turkey is going to close access to the Bosphorus for at least a period of time uh, to all naval traffic. Um, so it'll be, it'll be a door that slams shut. So maybe one of the things you're looking for now is when those six ships, six, six ships <laughs> get, in, get, get through the, uh, the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus and into the Black Sea, um, then, that'll, then they're there. Um, it also means, however, that they won't be able to be resupplying the, the forces in Syria for a while. That's probably something that they'll, they'll just suck up and say, well, that'll happen. Um, I mean, do you think that that's, that's reasonable? What would, these, what would this amphibious capability do for the Russians in the Black Sea? What are they threatening? A very important question. So as you rightly say, there are six large amphibious ships that are currently passing the English Channel on their way over there. So they still have about 10 odd days before they could potentially arrive uh, if they kept going at full speed. As you also mentioned early, much earlier in the conversation, these are very old ships uh, with the exception of the Ivan Gren, which was finally commissioned after a very long construction period a couple of years back. But they are each capable of carrying basically a company's worth of troops, which is nothing to sneeze at uh, when you're looking at some of the large expanse that Ukraine has. And just as Russia is too big to really do A2AD the way that we kind of imagine they can, Ukraine's also far too big relative to the amount of force that they have to do to pull off the same effect. So assuming that these uh, ships get in, this would not be the first time that we've seen this degree of transfer over to the uh, Black Sea, but this would be the first time that all of these ships are there at the same time since the 2014 buildup. Several of these ships did visit during the uh, May 2021 buildup around Ukraine, uh, but this would be, I believe, the first time that they've all shown up. Though a couple of them also visited as part of that ongoing transfer of material from Crimea to Novorossiysk to Syria over the course of that operation. But that's kind of fizzled out since late 2018. If those ships were in the Black Sea, um, they do offer a variety of new options for expanding a potential front uh, beyond just the areas that are currently being threatened from Ukraine. Now, the difficulty in this is that in the Black Sea, there's a lot of these features called Liman, which essentially are the only breaking points in the escarpment uh, that it dominates the western side of the sea. So it's not like it's full of beaches. Uh, there's, full, there's plenty of beaches for you to go to the beach and enjoy yourself, but it's all underneath of basically a 30 meter cliff uh, around most of the western edge of the sea. Uh, people have seen the old movie Battleship Potemkin where they're all marching down the steps. The bottom of the steps is the harbor in Odessa. So it's a decent example of 
where of the degree of height difference you have between the mainland and the edge of the sea. Um, there are gaps inside of those Liman areas that are tend to be tourist air, tend to be tourist developed zones where amphibious landings could be done. Um, the area directly across from Crimea and the Kherson Oblast south of the Dnieper River has much more open ter terrain and open beaches for you to do a large scale landing in a rush to, for example, the uh, water routes, uh, the, the water sluices from the Dnieper River to Crimea that used to be the main source of uh, that scarce commodity in a very desertified peninsula. Uh, so that could be a major vector here. Uh, there's also a decent, the area off the uh, northern side of the Sea of Azov does, is also relatively open to amphibious landing as well. And it could be used to encircle the Ukrainian forces that are principally being still deployed in the Donbass region. Um, I'm not remembering precisely just how many brigades the Ukrainians have in total, but at any given time, at least about 50% of them are forward deployed, holding everything in place. So being able to cut those forces off from resupply uh, at the same time that you do a major increase in activity along the front would certainly be a major point into potentially causing certain uh, certain operational targets to fall. Um, so now that I'm, so I'm, I'm just going to, we've got to wrap up pretty soon, but uh, I, I do want to put you on the spot. So also the Russians are, moving a, a lot of uh, material now, many material in, uh, from the eastern side of the country, Siberia, over to the west in, in, in numbers that we've not seen before. What is your insult ratio telling you right now about, about what's going on? Is this, is this, is, have you ever seen it this high? Is there a long way to go? Where, where are we on your, on your insult scales? On my grand insult scale, uh, the fun part is I can say perfectly quantitatively in 2014 and the months leading up to the actual Russian conventional intervention in August when Russian forces that were definitely Russian forces operating in the chain of command across the border, there were 95 different insults being hurled at Ukraine every month. Uh, that's, that's multiple per day that they're making up and just blasting out there. Today, uh, it is about 35. So it's much, much lower than it was, but 35 is a lot higher than the 10 to 15 that was the average over 2016 to 2019. So it is worse. I will say that this Eastern military district movement has made me much, much more concerned than before. Until then, I thought that this was so obvious a ploy to get everybody to pay attention. The Maskarovka, the standard for all Russian attacks, had been so completely lost that this had to be a giant way of convincing the Europeans that this is something that we can now do with conventional weapons in addition to nuclear weapons and what actually can you do to respond. Now that we've got all these forces moving the Eastern military district in a way that is both expensive and certainly a relatively low cost way of deterring a potential counterattack into Belarus itself with some of the less ready forces of the Russian Federation. Um, among other things, just the sunk cost fallacy is going to start piling up in Moscow for what to do next. So I am much, much more concerned than I was, though I think on the spectrum of Russia analysts, I'm still relatively on the low end of probability of this exploding into a real conflict. Though, if I put it at one in three, that's, that's still pretty dire, and I'm on the low end. 
we've been talking to Nicholas J. Myers, a PhD candidate at the University of Glasgow. We're going to have to leave it there, but we hope that you'll come back and, and join us. I have to say that I'm hoping that your uh, your read is correct, um, you know, but it just seems that, you know, as we go day in and day out, we get closer to that three out of three. Uh, so we'll have to have you back on uh, to see if... Uh, to see how your thesis is going, and then to see, uh, you know, if your uh, if your take changes as things continue to escalate. But thank you again for joining us. No, oh, thank you for the opportunity. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, time for Squawk Box, and this week, Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on the efficacy of the so-called debate between the U.S. Navy's readiness and or forward presence. Well, Chris. A quick rundown of this week's headlines at the top of the show once again demonstrates how ridiculous the false comparison between presence and readiness remains. If policymakers and strategists believe the United States can compete with Russia and China, deter North Korean and Iranian aggression, and reassure a growing ally and partner base without both a present and ready Navy, then they aren't serious and should consider a new line of work. Weeks like this demand a Navy that can both operate forward and quickly move and surge forces to respond to crises and calls for help. This only happens if you build, maintain, and modernize your Navy with both presence and readiness in mind. Trying to pay for one by cutting the other is a recipe for disaster. We've said many times before, you get the Navy you pay for, but you also get the Navy you make the argument for. This week is the perfect time to correct skeptics and enlighten the uninformed as to why America needs a forward and operationally capable naval force. Well, here, here, and by the way, here, seriously. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.